Thank you again to all of you for making time uh, uh, of your grinded, uh, grind-filled lives, uh, lives to be here with us these last uh, 24 hours. I've just been uh, fantastic. I feel like I've met so many people, so many new friends, and um, really grateful to um, everyone uh, at All Souls for all the hard work they put in, including printing this beautiful leaflet right here. Um, for incredible food that we've had. That was, you know, I was talking to someone earlier. So let's say thank you to Carol Johnson for organizing that. I never can say no to a yogurt parfait. And I remember when parfait was only a milkshake. But now it's everything. It's everywhere. So if you want a parfait, they're on offer. But those are particularly fine parfaits. I think we had A-plus parfait. Um, I'm kidding a little bit. Uh, thank you also to the Anglican Foundation for supporting this and for making this possible. It really is an amazing thing to be able to tell people that they can come, even if they, you know, empty-handed, as it were, to enjoy some time, some input, some fresh, hopefully edifying, stimulating uh, input, as well as uh, you know, time of fellowship. And that food last night, my goodness. My goodness, I was hoping there would be leftovers for me to bring on the plane. <laughs> so, uh, that said, I am just going to launch into my final, the final talk here, though we will hear a short sermon um, during the closing, uh, the closing service. And the, name of my, the, the, the title of my talk is Things Done and Left Undone. Hope Beyond the To-Do List. Things done and left undone. And this is sort of a, uh, a head nod, a tip of the hat to the Anglican Foundation because I'm quoting, of course, the Book of Common Prayer's Confession of Sin. We ask, uh, we've offended against thee by what we've done and by what we have left undone. And the sort of more fancy uh, way that the right one says it is we have left undone those things which we ought to have done and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. So when we're talking about the grind, we're often talking about doing, and we're talking about uh, what, is, what is left to be done. And so I felt like a perfect you know, gift of an organizing principle for here. So I want to talk a little bit about the things that we've done, and the things we need to do, and the things that we've left undone. One of the things I love about the confession of sin is that I don't think Cranmer was thinking in terms of uh, type A's and type B personalities. But he, he kind of covered them both here. You know, I'm, I'm a, I would be classified as a type A, which means I'm irritating, I'm uh, neurotic, I uh, need to get things done. I'm a, I'm a go-getter, uh, as it were. You know, I have, to, I have to create a ministry out of nothing because nothing, you know, otherwise I can't sign on to anything else. Um, this is self-deprecating humor. You'll get used to it. <laughs> I promise. Uh, but... And it also describes my wonderful, beloved wife, who is an artist and is maybe struggles with guilt over things she, 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 she you know, if I, if I get to inbox zero, she's at inbox 2365, <laughs> right? You know what I'm talking about? I think church people tend to be the inbox zero types, um, but uh, there's a few of you hidden out there, I'm sure, who are inbox 2365. Right? Um, 60,000, someone just said? 600,000. 600,000 unread emails. I love you. You are a sanctified individual. You should be giving this talk and not me. 
But uh, the things that on our to-do list, the things that are still on our to-do list after all of these months, the, the email that we just keep procrastinating on, or the, the, the things that we, you know, you get to the beginning of the fall, and especially in a town with a big university like this, where I live in a town with a big university, and, you know, September rolls around. And if you're at all like me, you start to get anxious just thinking about it, even if you stopped being in school a long time ago. Or even if you, I've got little kids and they're going to school, but you think, you know, um, what were all those projects and things I said yes to in April? That sounded like a good idea. We're going to do something in where? Oklahoma City? What? Why did I say yes? Just kidding. I never regret things like that. But you, um, you get there and you think, this fall, how are we going to do it? How are we going to do it? It seemed like a good idea at the time. And then your children have their sports seasons just starting. And their rides from school. And you feel like you need a PhD to coordinate these things. Carrie, I think, spelled it out beautifully. You know, you not just have one sport. They've got three sports going concurrently. And, um, you know, that's usually the first child. By the end, they're lucky if they even get a stick. Um, we just had our third... He'll be very well adjusted, but he's not going to play many sports. <laughs> but you think about those people in your neighborhood or at your church you've been dying to have over for dinner, and you've, you've thought of a couple of times, you really, you know, when are we going to do that? Well, um, we're invited to this other place, and so that, that's going to happen. And then, of course, um, out-of-town guests come right when you're ready to finally invite those people over. And, you know, we're getting ready for Thanksgiving. You know, it's really only three weeks away. Are you ready for it? <laughs> Do you have your plans made? Do you know what you're going to cook? Who's coming? Are you having your in-laws? I mean, are you going to be able to do this? And do you, I mean, have you even had a second to think about Christmas yet? Because it's on the horizon. And if you don't remember, CBS and Toys R Us and... Starbucks, as we all know, is going to remind us in a major way. But let's just hope and pray that your car does not break down between now and then. Because if, you know, not only will you have to pay for it, but if you can't not get everywhere, if you cannot be two places at once, uh, uh, to quote Luther, um, <laughs> then um, you're going to be in trouble. So... We live in this world, and one of the reasons we wanted to talk about grace and the grind is just because we, we live in the world that it feels like a grind. And I don't think, when you, the thing is, when you paint it uh, realistically, as the speakers have done, I believe, it sounds uh, disconcerting at first, but if you're, if you're really listening, my, my hope is that you'd feel known, that you're not alone in feeling overwhelmed in feeling undone by the amount of demand placed upon you simply by being a human being in the world. To say nothing about 21st century America. I mean, the, I am the, the increasing number of commentators have talked about the defining word of our uh, current, even the most casual social interactions now, is busy, Right? Uh, Crider, Tim Crider, writing in the New York Times, put it most, most beautifully. And I, I, I would, I would not stop talking about busyness if, if, if it was less of a besetting issue. But, you know, if you live in America in the 21st century, he wrote, you've probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you how busy they are. Right? Um, it is a pathology. We used to be, say, when we're asked how we're doing, we used to say fine or well or say, oh, you know, you know. 
what do they say in Minnesota? It's like, not bad. It's always, it's never good. You're just doing not bad. <laughs> that's sort of a Midwestern thing too, I think. It's this understatement. Uh, you know, it could be worse. That kind of thing. <laughs> Great. I love America. Um, but today the default response, I think even in the Midwest, is busy. How are you doing? I'm busy. Uh, and it's an honest answer because we are busy. We are busy, you know, we're busy at church. We're busy with our families. We're busy online. We're busy uh, at, at the mall. We're busy uh, dealing with our grown children. We're busy dealing with our bank account. We're just, we're busy. And we're never sort of away from these devices. We're tethered to them. You know, I think that the smartphones and technology, and this is what we, I talked about when I was here in uh, last March, but it has quickened the pace of life to an almost absurd extent. And you, you read editorials about what's going on in American culture, and most people feel that there's an escalation happening of uh, just uh, how much more can we possibly do? How much more, you know, I think a study came out last week saying that Americans on average work 19 hours a week more than Europeans, right? And that we, are, we lead the world in untaken vacation days. How much more can, and, uh, there's a great book that just came out called America the Anxious, talking about how Americans are more anxious than they've ever been, so that, uh, and we're also uh, pursuing happiness more forthrightly than we ever have before. Everything's about happiness, but everyone's anxious. And um, they talk about how um, that one of the reasons this is the case is because work has completely annexed social life. You know, you, you go to Google, you go to some of these uh, Amazon, you talk to people who work at the really big companies, and they say, we don't talk about work-life balance. That's for people who don't like their work. We talk about work-life integration. In other words, you should be working all of the time. We provide fun at work so that we can take over your social life as well. This is the, the treadmill that we're on. When we talk about the grind, it is grinding. You feel worn down by it, do we not? We are busy. We are very busy. People in ministry are busy. People in education are busy. Uh, yes, people in finance and consulting, we all know how busy they are. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you are busier than you know. Your head is spinning. Uh, the plates that John Newton talked about, I mean, it's not five. It's more like 55. And I don't think, uh, I'm trying to have some compassion here because I don't think what you need from the church is another plate to keep spinning, as John talked about. Because, but, but busyness, let's not act as though it's something that's just been thrust upon us. It's, it's not a, uh, it's not, we're not victims of the busyness culture in which we live. We are co-participants. We are uh, actively complicit in it. You see, busyness, frantic doing, frantic activity, is a predominant indicator of worth and value. It just is. It's a measure of identity and therefore personal righteousness. The more frantic the activity, the better. Kreider himself spelled this out when he said that busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot be possibly be silly or trivial, meaningless if you are so busy, so completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. This, uh, in that book, America, the Anxious, Ruth Whitman says that she's, this is a woman, a journalist who's come from England to California and wants to make friends. She says, she writes on Facebook, she says, I have no friends. Anyone want to be my friend? And so her, uh, 
her, a, a friend of hers sets her up on a sort of a blind friend date with another woman who's got another little, a little kid. And they go out and they have a lot. They have a great time. And this new woman, her name's Allison, she tells her all about uh, her uh, new yoga class she's in, her mindfulness group that she started at work. Uh, she does talk about her church life she's, uh, and, um, and the activities her children are doing. And, but they really hit it off. They have a great time. And then over the months, she keeps trying to get together with Allison again. But Allison is too busy, it turns out, to actually have a friendship. She says, I, and eventually she, she responds, as maybe, maybe you have before, you know, I just don't have room in my life right now. Even though she's pursuing happiness so strongly in terms of her personal contentment, her uh, meditation life, her Christian life, what, what, a spiritual life, her material life, that the number one thing that's actually an indicator of happiness, which John talked about last night, which is being known in community, is the one thing she doesn't have any time for. It's, it's a deeply ironic and kind of sad situation. So, I mean, what does it say about you if you're not busy in life? When was the last time you were bored? It doesn't say anything good. The implication is that if we're not over-occupied, if we're not always doing, if we're not always, and by that I'm talking about the good and the bad, the stuff that Cranmer has us by what we have done. There's something in our doing that actually needs to be confessed, to be repented of. That, um, that if we're not doing, then we're inferior to those who are. And of course, again, as John and, uh, and Alex pointed out, there's no enough. There's, there is no enough. The rabbit, I stopped running when I realized the rabbit uh, it was real. I, I can't, I'm going to rip that off, that story. I just, I blew it just now. But um, <laughs> it's a really good story. I think the more apt metaphor for our society is that we're, we're all greyhounds and uh, the bunnies don't even look like real bunnies. They're like increasingly cartoonish like the bunny from, from uh, you know, Tricks. And uh, we're just still running because what else are we going to do? And, 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 and what, what Kreider's saying is we're going to keep running because if we stop, then we're going to have to think about ourselves. And we're going to have to deal with our pain, with our wounds. And that is what we do not want to do. So busyness is both a way of justifying yourself by the amount of activities you have, by your resume, but it's also a way of distracting yourself from any kind of vulnerability or pain. And uh, I think we know this. We know that the justifications that we attain through our achievements don't really work. We know that they, you know, just talk to people who are really successful, because none of them are here in this room, but so go, <laughs> just go out and find one. Just kidding. Uh, If you talk to them about their life, you will invariably hear some sort of frustration, if they're being honest with you, and they may not be honest with you, that uh, the higher you climb on whatever ladder you deem worthy, the longer it gets. It's cruel. You know, how else do you account for the fact that the more, like the most beautiful people in the world feel their blemishes most acutely? The more successful uh, people feel more rather than less pressure to succeed. These things, these, these ladders are not uh, innocuous or, uh, um, you know, benign. These, this is actually a way, this means of distraction, this means of appeasement is actually having the opposite effect. This is the voice uh, of the sort of little L law that we are talking about. Now, what's interesting is Andrew Sullivan, the, the essayist, wrote an article this year for um, New York Magazine, and he talked about what his life had become as a person working in the online sphere. 
and blogging, and I'm a person who is very active online, and it's sort of, if you want to reach people, that's, that's where they are. Online life is not an escape from everyday life. It is everyday life, okay? We have to accept that as the church. That's where people are. Um, but Sullivan said something really interesting. He, he linked this over-occupation, uh, our workaholism, or at least our distractibility. He linked it with secularism. He says that the reason we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproved the unprovable, but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which it might endure or be born. Faith, in other words. uh, He uh, he goes on, he says, The roar and disruption of the Industrial Revolution violated what quiet still remained until modern capitalism made business central to our culture and the ever more efficient meeting of needs and wants uh, our primary collective goal. We became a civilization of getting things done with the development of America in some way as its crowning achievement. Silence in modernity uh, became over the centuries an anachronism even a symbol of the useless superstitions we'd left behind. The smartphone revolution of the past decade can be seen in some ways simply as the final twist of this ratchet in which those few remaining redoubts of quiet, the tiny cracks of inactivity in our lives, are being methodically filled with more stimulus and noise. And yet, he tells us, our need for quiet has never fully gone away because our practical achievements, however spectacular, never quite fulfill us. This is, this is just a different way of talking about what we're, about uh, the, the rabbit not being real. They are always giving way to new wants and needs, always requiring updating or repairing, always falling short. And the mania of our online lives, and in case you, you know, think, oh, that is a generational thing, you know, by far and away, the people who signed up for Facebook last year were over the age of 70. That's the biggest group. Not, not any of you, clearly. Um, uh, we keep swiping and swiping because we are never fully satisfied and the late British philosopher Michael Oakeshott I love this phrase he starkly called this truth the deadliness of doing the deadliness of doing there seems to be no end to this paradox of practical life no way out just an infinite succession of efforts all doomed ultimately to fail this is why we talk about what we have done as well as what we have left undone our doing is not, it's not just that we, we sin in, in, uh, in, uh, in commission, that we do something actively, maybe malevolent or self-centered or whatnot, but even the very doing itself is often uh, a way of digging ourselves deeper into a hole of self-sufficiency, but ultimately despair. Because there is no such thing as self-sufficiency. It's a, it's, it's, the rabbit's not real. There is no enough. Now, <clears throat> what about the things left undone? What about the things left undone? That, we talked a little bit about the things that have been done. What about the things that have been left undone? I, I, I think of this in terms of regret. What are the things in your life that you didn't ever get around to, that you wish you had done? And we are a society awash in regret. In 2011, the New York Times reported on a survey that the most common regret involved, what do you think? What's the most common thing you, people regret? Time with children, family, close, close. The one that got away, romance. Romance is the number one regret people have. So um, this is uh, just the fact of life, I guess. Um, Number two is family issues. You wish you'd been nicer to a sibling or spent more time with your own children. 
Uh, number three, education. You wish you'd worked harder in school. You know, I, I was a, a one point away from magna cum laude at my undergraduate experience, and I, I, I still feel terrible about it. And that sounds like a humble brag. Hey, <laughs> I only got cum laude. But to me, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't matter. I'm thinking to myself, I could have done this other thing, I did, but I didn't do it. And that's why I have to make up an excuse. I have to make it into a joke. I really wish I had. Um, uh, or maybe gone to gotten that other degree when you had the chance, before the kids came along. Number uh, four is your career. People often, I think, I think more people than you think, regret their career choice. You talk to a lot of lawyers, or uh, not so much doctors, but you talk to a lot of you know, people who are working in offices, and they, they say, you know, how did, I get, how did I get here? I've been doing this job for 25 years, and I, it means nothing to me. Uh, it's, I wish I had had, you know, I remember my buddy back in high school, he decided to go follow his dreams, and I didn't. I was too afraid. People, so people regret their career. Uh, number five was financial decisions. Financial decisions. I had, remember talking to a guy um, in Charlottesville. Uh, he came to me. And uh, he told me about this thing called Bitcoin that we should all, you know, if I had $500, I should give him some money for it. And I thought to myself, get away from me, man. Like, where are you from, Nigeria? Um, uh, that sounds made up. It sounds like a joke. Well, a year later, he retired at the age of um, uh, 31 and has been traveling the world in style. <laughs> And I'm, I'm here with you guys. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's a regret people have. <laughs> Something we've, that we've left undone. Then there's parenting mistakes. And then, of course, there's health, health mistakes. Mist mistakes with your health. You know, you wish you'd, you'd quit drinking earlier. Or you wish you'd started drinking earlier. <laughs> um, you wish you hadn't eaten so poorly. You know, you got so uh, addicted to, um, you know, saturated fats uh, from uh, Wendy's. You know, have you, ever, have you ever gotten the fries and the Frosty and dipped the fr fries in the Frosty? <laughs> Let me just plant that seed for you. Let's see where it goes. Like, how did I find myself at Chick-fil-A again? Uh, well, um, usually the regret in, in that we deal with, uh, it's compounded in a society that has this view of human nature that we've talked about that has no limitation, where we're all drunk on the myth of our potential, that uh, what, we, what we might have it in ourselves to do. This can make life, so in Americans, we have a very optimistic view of what it means to be a human being. We have very high anthropology. The flip side of that is that it makes life a perpetual falling short. It's why, the reason why so many of your children are completely paralyzed when it comes to finding someone to love and to spend their lives with. Because you have um, so many people out there that could possibly be their soulmate. Uh, you know, it's not just the people in their apartment building. It's not just the people in the, on their street or at their school. They have the six billion people on Facebook that one of them might be the perfect person who will meet every single one of their, per, of their needs. Right? That's paralyzing. You know, I, I have a hard time picking out the right cereal or the right toothpaste. No, you don't? There's a lot of choices out there. Do you want the whitening? Do you want the stuff with extra fluoride? Do you want the stuff that has got 
spearmint? Do you want stuff with scope in it? I mean, uh, you could just sit there in front of the cereal aisle for, you know, an hour. Or the toothpaste aisle. So, <laughs> think about it in terms of who you want to spend your life with. She's great, but what about her? You know, um, or what about her? Um, so, uh, I think that uh, Adam Phillips, the great psychoanalyst and uh, writer in England, he wrote that our lives in this sort of understanding of, 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 of left undone, he says, our lives might become a protracted mourning for or an endless tantrum about the lives we were unable to live. We are grieving or regretting or resenting our failure to be ourselves as we imagine we could be. In other words, we share our lives with the people we have failed to be. It's a heavy thing, and maybe growing up is the process of accepting that you are not the person that you have failed to be. You are the person that God has made you. But those people who can never stop dreaming of what might have been have a very difficult time accepting uh, what is, because what might have been is always better than what is. It's always better. Uh, Really, instinctually, a life of regret, of things left undone where we're completely occupied with these things, is uh, especially prevalent because we've come to conceive of life as 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 a process of getting things right. We have an inherent, instinctual, what Hebrews would call even, you know, written on the tablets of the heart, uh, idea that life is about getting it right. There's a, the law, then you better follow it. And one of the chief things to be avoided in life is therefore not loss or hurt, but regret. So, um, the modern word for this aversion to regret, anyone know, and you, you know what it is, right? Starts with an F. Ends with an OMO. FOMO. Fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. This is a hashtag. If you've always wondered what it means when someone says hashtag FOMO, it means what everyone feels whenever they look at any form of social media. I'm missing out on that incredible trip to the countryside that I'm seeing. Uh, given the enormous number of options out there, what am I doing in a, you know, it's so beautiful outside. What are we doing in a church? You know? What are we missing out on? The more choices we have, the deeper that fear runs that we're missing something. And, you know, the, 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 the Christian would trace this right back to the Garden of Eden. You know, what am I, I, what am I missing by not having that apple? So um, regret, of course, is, 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 very, is deeply self-centered. Uh, regret is usually what we feel when we realize we've hurt ourselves, when we've damaged our careers, tarnished our reputations, limited our options. This is why... Politicians, athletes, they issue statements of regret. They're like classic non-apologies. What we're looking for is remorse, not regret. Remorse is the acknowledgement that you've actually hurt another person. Regret is that I'm sorry that my, I've messed up my career by doing something stupid. Or at least by getting it found out. I know you know nothing about this, uh, given our national discourse. Um, LAUGHTER but in the midst of these, uh, this talk about what we've done and what we've left undone, the paralysis that it creates in a person, the guilt, the shame, the way it traps you, it imprisons you, it is, I think, it, doubly urgent to think about Jesus and uh, the one that Mark says has done everything well. The KJV says, he hath done all things well. This is a panoramic statement of universal comfort, especially for those of us who are much more aware of what we haven't done than what we have. 
this is the context of, this, uh, of the, that word about Jesus is Mark 7. I'm going to read you the passage. 31 through 37. Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. He took him aside in private, away from the crowd, and put his fingers into his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epapta, that is, be opened. And immediately the man's ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one. But the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. So why are they saying this about Jesus? In what context has Jesus done everything well? Well, he has done everything well in that he has done for someone what they cannot do for themselves. He has done that which is beyond your control, beyond this man's control. Physician, heal thyself. I mean, it's... He, he needs to be, he heals a deaf mute. Ears are open, tongue is released. He liberates someone from the captivity to their infirmities, which is freedom. So that everything in this, in this episode refers to Christ's power over intractable suffering. It doesn't refer to just uh, having, you know, ace the test. It refers to the fact that uh, he, he has power over physical ailments that we do not have power over. And if he can do something there, then there is no sphere of life where Christ does not hold sway. Again, we have grace, we have God meeting us in the weakness, in the infirmity, in the vulnerability, not at the point of strength. Because we all know, those of us who are not dealing with physical infirmities, there are such a thing as emotional infirmities, depression, anger, uh, addiction, lust. Many of us spend our lives trying to do something about the things we can't control. And indeed, this, the, the epidemic of worry, David Brooks wrote a wonderful op-ed in the New York Times last week about it. He says that we're living in a, amidst a culture of worry. And it's not just FOMO. It's the, uh, it's the active sense that uh, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. What does fear stand for? False evidence appearing real. Isn't that what people say? False evidence appearing real. But um, anxiety in our context often has to do with the fact that we cannot do something about that which we would most like to do something. That the, what, what we've left undone is actually much more prevalent, much more powerful. That our control is lacking. The mental health situation, the cover of Time Magazine this week is about teenage mental health, which has taken such a severe nosedive in recent years that finally people are saying, maybe our addiction to doing and the communicate, what we communicate to our children might, not, um, might, might need, be need, in need of a little bit of adjustment away from the rampant performancism that has so deeply ingrained itself in a disenchanted world, as Jonathan put it. I was struck by Sherry Turkle. Uh, she's an MIT, uh, uh, studies robotics and technology, and she's a great pundit on technology. She wrote a book recently called The Lost Art of Conversation. And uh, she was uh, in a talk about conversation, the relationship between technology actually and loneliness. She says, what, when I ask people what's wrong with having a conversation, 
People say, I'll tell you what's wrong with it. It takes place in real time and you can't control what you're going to say. (laughs) So that's the bottom line. Texting, email, posting, all those things let us present the self we want to be. We get to edit, we get to curate, which means we get to delete. That means we get to retouch the face, the voice, the flesh, the body. Not too little, not too much, just right. We turn to technology to help us feel connected in ways that we can comfortably control. But we're not so comfortable and we're not so much in control. In other words, technology has not made communication better, just more controlled. And the two, in fact, are at odds with each other. Doom and gloom, I know. A little bit. A little bit. I love this thing, too, by the way. Um, Mockingbird wouldn't exist without this thing. Maybe not without this thing we could do without, but other similar devices. You're supposed to laugh. (laughs) So the good news of the gospel here in this particular episode is that Jesus has done everything. And he's done it well. This is past tense. It's not up for grabs. There's no if. No but. Uh, You know, something has been accomplished and that something is total. Nothing that needs to be done hasn't already been done. When God looks at you, he's not looking at you as someone who has anything left to do. No, I'm of course extrapolating from this episode onto the death and resurrection of Christ in which we are, sinners are reconciled to a holy God uh, and we have become the people of God. When God looks at us, there is nothing uh, that he needs us to do. The expectation has been dealt with. Now, why is that important? Why is that not the defeating word that it sometimes sounds like? Are you telling me God doesn't care what I do? No. I'm telling you God cares about you so much that he died for you. And he rose again. Uh, I love, Alan de Botton is a guy who wrote a book called Religion for Atheists. And he's, he's, he's a, but he's a very wise person and he's talked a lot about the nature of love in a world that is just filled with anxiety and demand. He talks about a lot of what we're talking about here, but in more sort of horizontal terminology. This is what he, this is spoke to me as someone who's got a two and a half month old right now. He says, we are used to loving others in return for what they can do for us, for their capacity to entertain, charm, or soothe us. Yet babies can do precisely nothing. There is, as older children sometimes conclude with serious discomfiture, no point to them. (laughs) That is their point. They teach us to give without expecting anything in return simply because they need help badly, and we are in a position to provide it. We are inducted as parents and as children into a love based not on an admiration for strength, but on a compassion for weakness, a vulnerability common to every member of the species, and one which has been and will eventually again be our own. Because it is always tempting to overemphasize autonomy and independence, these helpless creatures are here to remind us that no one is in the end self-made. We are all heavily in someone's debt. Now what a thing to say. A baby doesn't have, uh, doesn't, isn't looking to you. Uh, you, If you're looking to them to give something back to you, you better keep looking. Because it's not going to happen. Um, and this is, of course, the, one of the, the beautiful things. We talk about sacraments. We talk about infant baptism. How can we not talk about the fact that you are, you are this is what God thinks. Of the, this, before the child has had anything, any say in the matter, we are saying this is what God thinks about you. 
that you are, you are so loved that he uh, has died for you to give you new life. Before you even have a chance to start earning that, to start contributing to it, um, to start fulfilling some kind of expectation. So there is a great insight and reality here because in relationships, as it works out, both with our relationship with God and with our relationship with each other, something having been done for you is what enables you to do, Right? Joyfully, spontaneous, creatively. When you are forgiven, you become more loyal. I remember the story I would tell is a story that my brother actually tells something that happened to him. <clears throat> he and his wife had gone to eat at a restaurant in Charleston, South Carolina, where they live. And if you've been to Charleston recently, it's a little bit like uh, uh, Oklahoma City, but on steroids. It's experienced this foodie revolution where every place you eat is like the place to eat, right? And um, it's a little anxiety producing because what if you order the wrong thing? Okay. <laughs> Um, but, uh, and food, uh, meals become this new liturgy that is a little bit overblown. However, food, it tastes really good as well. <laughs> That's an aside. My brother goes to this place, he orders a huge meal, delicious meal, and uh, then the waiter comes with the check and says, what does he say? It's cash only. Cash only? In 2016? How dare you! Get a square reader. Um, he says, I feel very, very sorry. The manager um, <clears throat> asks my brother if he has a check, maybe, he could write. And he, he always says, no, I, I left my checks in 1986. <laughs> uh, the, but um, <clears throat> maybe, you, maybe you're the person who writes checks at the grocery store, in which case I'm asking you on behalf of all of us to stop. Um, he says, don't worry, I'm going to leave you my wife as collateral. <laughs> the manager looks at me, stamps the receipt, with the, and he puts the, the restaurant's address. And he says, it's okay, mail it in. Have a nice night. That was unexpected. Now, my brother, leaving that place, not once did he think, awesome, I got a meal for free. I basically just dined and dashed. Right? I've always wanted to do that. No. The man was, was merciful to him. He gave to him. And the, my brother came back the next day, checkbook in hand. And what's more, he went and told everyone he knew about this restaurant. What happens in the passage? I know it's a trivial example. But what happens in the passage? It's exactly what the people do. Jesus, in his classic way, says, please don't tell anyone about this. Got some other stuff I still need to keep doing. And by the way, the healing isn't even the point of all this. I'm gonna, there's a cross. There's all, um, they say, they went and tell everyone what happened. And they cannot help themselves actually from doing that. They're so excited. Again, it's a trivial example, but the same is true with the gospel of grace. He has done all things well. We live in response to this truth. It is the beginning not the end, the wound, the infirmity. That's the path. That's the trailhead, as it were. Um, I think about this in terms of uh, regret. Uh, you know, the regret we endure when we look back at everything we didn't do, uh, perhaps because we wasted so much time uh, being stupid, is the stuff of despair. Yet in literature and in life, I believe it's also the stuff of redemption. Regret and repentance are very similar. They're like cousins. Think of uh, Ivan Illich, Tolstoy, people who've read it. 
who understands on his deathbed how meaningless his careerist life has been, how meaningless all his doing has actually been, and is therefore in that moment confronted with his own finitude and uh, the reality of God, he is freed to love. Because he has died before he's dead, he has been given freedom from the very self that can regret. If that makes sense. Now, naturally, uh, the, the, the sad fact, and I think Jonathan got at this in his talk earlier, is that the church um, has a tendency to become uh, another place where uh, the to-do list is, is given to you. Carrie talked about it as well. There's a lot of should, a lot of, you know, it's a place where, instead of being a place where you can come when you don't do well, which is what church traditionally has been seen as, meaning you come there when you're dead. <laughs> you come there to be forgiven, to confess. You come there in your weakness and your brokenness. You don't come, and, you, and, you, and the gospel is preached every single week in the form of, you know, the word and sacrament, and it's because every single week you need it. You never outrun that need. Um, well, the church, unfortunately, when we, it, it, it's hopped up on this optimistic view of human nature, this pat-on-the-back sense of who we are, um, it becomes another place of to, of to do, another place of doing and not doing. Uh, I remember my friend Tellian talked about it as being, he, he said, I grew up believing that the whole goal of being a Christian was to be good, to get better, to progress, to become stronger and stronger and more and more competent. Jesus was essentially Santa Claus. He knew if I'd been naughty or nice, it would only bring me presents if I behaved. I'm pretty sure I'm not the only American Sunday schooler who picked up on that train of thought. Indeed, Santa theology is so commonplace because it, let, it, it plays to our performance-driven nature, which puts the control in our own, in our own pocket. Um, we thank God for saving us, for justifying us, for getting us into the kingdom, and then we drift back into the performance and the demands of everyday life. <clears throat> I see what I see when I look at the church. I see a lot of well-intentioned Christians who run themselves and their fellow believers ragged, trying to keep up appearances by doing more, by being more, by trying harder. And uh, I, I, it, makes, it breaks my heart that we often experience the church uh, as a place that perpetuates rather than relieves exhaustion. Um, <clears throat> the Jesus, who has done everything well, uh, is not just the one who saves non-Christians, but who saves Christians. He is there for you, in other words. He, his plan is not to steer us beyond the gospel, but to move us more deeply into it. This is what we talked about in terms of descent. Andrew Sullivan, in his article about distraction, actually picked up on this in a beautiful way. He talks about church as being a refuge from the noise of everyday life, from the frantic do deadliness of doing. He says, from the moment I entered a church in my childhood, I understand this place was different because it was so quiet. The mass itself was full of silences, those liturgical pauses that would never do in a theater, those minutes of quiet after communion when we were encouraged to get lost in prayer, those spaces that seemed to insist that we are in no hurry here. And this silence demarcated what was once understood to be sacred, Marking a space beyond the secular world of noise and business and shopping. Business, business, business. Numbers, numbers, numbers. <clears throat> um, so, to you here as we leave this place, I hope and pray that you have come to, uh, you, you will leave a little lighter than when you walked in. That maybe the silence that we will be surrounded with in this prayer service, maybe let it be a gift to you. 
But perhaps you're already thinking about your to-do list. What do you have to do this afternoon after all? I mean, your boss, your teacher, your parent, your spouse, know that they may be looking to you with demand and expectant eyes, but God is not. He doesn't think you have to do anything before you can have peace. His peace has been secured. It is a present tense affair. So yes, the judgments against us will persist just as sin persists, but God is greater than our sin. The gospel pronounces that these judgments have lost their bite. The law has been defanged. Those judgments you hear are not coming from God. The condemnation we feel is simply a feeling no more binding than any other. Because God has gotten out of the condemnation game in Jesus Christ. The blood of our crucified Savior is the final word on that score. So where are you afraid of not doing or not doing well? What are you worried about? If and when you fail, he has done everything well. Where are you struggling with that which is outside of your control? Well, he has done everything well. John says that God is greater than our hearts. He is not beholden to your guilty or shame-ridden conscience. This is because he not only did everything, he knows everything. He knows how the story ends, that the scales of the universe in the end come down decisively on the side of love. That old gospel tune, where they were right, Jesus dropped the charges. He is not only the one who has done and knows everything, he is the one who gave everything. For your sake, for our sake, God has done the dying for us, and he did it well. He did it very well. Amen.